0: The USHBC strategic plan is setting forth an ambitious goal of doubling its exports in the next five years. But what is that gonna take?
1: When you open a market, it normally takes anywhere from five to 10 years. Uh, In the last year and a half, we have been able to open the Vietnam market for US blueberries, the Philippine market for US blueberries, and the Chinese market for US blueberries. There was a lot of work that went into them, but that is lightning pace for the type of work that we do.
0: In today's episode, I sit down with NABC USHBC vice president of global business development, Alicia Adler, and two industry experts in trade to help unpack the process of opening and developing global markets for blueberries.
2: This copyrighted podcast is presented by the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council. The opinions and views shared by those of non paid guests on the business of blueberries are those of our guests and do not represent the views, positions or policies of the USHBC. The blueberry industry is like no other, passionate, resilient, and innovative. This podcast is your source for the latest information on the management, markets, research, and technology related to blueberry production. This is the Business of Blueberries. Here's your host, President of the U.S. High Bush Blueberry Council, Casey Cronquist.
0: Welcome back to another episode of The Business of Blueberries, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the blueberry industry. As the team here at USHBC continues to focus on building domestic demand for blueberries, there's a lot of market opportunities opening up internationally. You've recently heard about China four episodes ago, as well as others we have shared last season on the podcast. We're back today with another episode focused on market access, and we'll get into some of the details of what it really takes to open up these markets for blueberries. Joining me again co-host of this episode is Alicia Adler, Vice President of Global Business Development at USHBC and NABC. Welcome back, Alicia.
3: Thanks, Casey. Good to be back.
0: Well, you have set a bit of a high bar for these episodes, so no pressure. But uh, why did you want to bring these topics and guests onto the podcast today?
3: Well, the previous international episodes have really been focused on the market opportunity and potential and trying to highlight you know, the potential opportunity for exporters and kind of where we're at and also share some experiences from some of the guests we've had that are already exporting to them. But and also, you know, given the time, uh, middle of the export season kind of winding down a little bit and ahead of our fall meetings, I wanted to bring on our guests today to talk about the technical aspect of exporting and kind of what USHBC has been up to over the past year, really, and ramping up our program and effort there and making it as easier as possible for growers and exporters to actually take advantage of these markets.
0: Yeah. Well, and and you know, understanding that it could get technical in the conversation here in terms of you know, how it works and, but I think a good place to start is just to explain, you know, kind of the role that the organizations that we work for, NABC and USHBC fit into this and maybe explain the difference these two organizations take and how they relate to export market development.
3: Sure. So the North American Blueberry Council and the U.S. Bush Blueberry Council play different, but each very important roles in export market development for the U.S. blueberry industry. Since the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council cannot influence government or legislation or policy, the North American Blueberry Council really serves that role for the industry. And when it comes to trade and exporting, it's the NABC that drafts communication. The NABC has retained Bryant Christie to assist with its trade policy. We work closely with Dan Haley as well to work with the U.S. Trade Representative Office, as well as USDA, to you know really access the market and open them. And that's really what triggers the initial steps in opening up a new market. NABC also advocates for the industry in terms of tariff reduction and making it obviously a lot more affordable to access markets. The U.S. High-Bush Blueberry Council, on the other hand, Works more on the technical and phytosanitary and sanitary barriers that come up in exporting and trying to remove those as much as possible. And a part of that work is also working on MRL policy or maximum residue level policies that can really affect how we grow our blueberries here in the U.S. and the markets will be able to access. It involves a lot of research um, and data collection, and that's really what USHBC funds through the Export Committee.
0: Well, and I appreciate you, you know, kind of walking through the differences between the two organizations. It is really synergistic in how both organizations can work on behalf of the industry to develop these markets, both in access and then obviously for their market development. So not all industries have uh, the left and right hand working as seamlessly as we are able to do it here in Blueberries. It's certainly a great value add. With that, let's dive into our topic with today's featured guests.
3: Sure. So as I said, our guests today are really here to explain and kind of give some insight into the technical side of exporting. We have Matt Lance from Bryant Christie and Mario Flores from Nature Right Farms. I'll let each of them introduce themselves individually. And starting with you, Matt, can you tell us a little bit about your background, who Bryant Christie is and what exactly you do for them?
1: Sure. Uh, Thank you, both Casey and Alicia. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Matt Lance. I'm the Vice President for Global Access at Bryant Christie. We are an international agricultural affairs management firm and we're based in Sacramento and Seattle. Our job is to open foreign markets for U.S. growers and try to give them additional opportunities uh, when they're exporting. That could be starting with uh, deciding where we want to try to export and negotiating an opening, uh, and also can be support. Uh, when people have challenges when they are exporting abroad, we've worked with the blueberry industry for several years now, and um, we have had quite a few successes. we look forward to discussing
3: it today. Thanks, Matt. And I should also mention uh, I've known Matt for as long as I've been working in agriculture. I appreciate his perspective on not just you know keeping us updated on the policy or work plans or regulations, but explaining why and sometimes i'll call him and say can you just explain why this is going on or, or what's really motivating another country to ask for this so you know his his knowledge and experience is really valuable and i'm glad the blueberry industry gets to benefit from it and so mario let's hear from you um i think most listeners are familiar with nature right farms but can you tell us a little bit about your background and your role for listeners that may not be familiar
4: my name is Mario Flores. I'm the director of supply strategy and analytics, kind of a new new role that I'm in. I, I have been a director of uh, blueberry product management for over 10 years at uh, Natripe right Farms, managing the category. Uh, as many know, Natripe right Farms is uh, the sales and marketing arm for many blueberry growers in North and South America. Even though our, our primary focus is in the North American market, we are uh, charged with the export sales of blueberries uh, for growers in North America to Asia, Europe and Middle East and, and other markets that are, are open for blueberries. So uh, one of the areas that I'm involved in is also in working with our export sales team in uh, seeking the new markets that are that are opened do the efforts of USHBC, NABC, folks like Matt Lance, and trying to develop new sales for our growers in those markets. So it's an exciting time with a lot more market access. And I know we'll be talking about that, but um, it's great to be here and discuss it.
3: Thanks, Mario. And I I also want to mention that you are the vice chair of the USHVC Export Committee. In terms of export market development for NatureIpe, how does exporting and market development fit in with NatureIpe's overall business plan? I mean, how important is it now and what are your plans for developing export markets in the future?
4: Well, it's it's a very important part of our overall marketing plan for our growers' blueberries because we, we're trying to find you know, what is the best value that we can return back to the farm. And whether that's uh, domestic retail or international sales, we're gonna try to find the, the market that can bring the most value back to the growers. And that's why it's important to have more markets uh, available to us because sometimes certain markets overseas can be a really good market and something can change from one year to the next. And then you want to have as many countries and markets open to you so you can find opportunities for your growers to to try and maximize their returns.
3: And that's actually leads into a good question for Matt. One thing I wanted to make sure that we talk about on this episode is, kind of talking about all of our market access initiatives that we've been working on. Since the industry has invested more resources into technical market access efforts, we've been able to do a lot more and faster. So, Matt, can you share kind of what we've been working on this year and kind of a big picture as to what we've been able to accomplish so far?
1: Sure. Thank you. You know, we have had some tremendous successes in the last, I'd say, year and a half or so. Uh, In the last year and a half, we have been able to open the Vietnam market for U.S. blueberries, the Philippine market for U.S. blueberries, and the Chinese market for U.S. blueberries. And, you know, frankly, when you open a market for a commodity, it normally takes anywhere from five to 10 years. There was a lot of work that went into them, but that is lightning pace for the type of work that we do. So once we have that market open, then we turned it over to Mario and others like him who are looking at opportunities to expand and grow. So we really had a banner probably uh, 18 months with those market openings. From there, we are now looking at additional markets to open or also improving current access. So we are interested in expanding our China access and allowing East Coast shippers to be able to ship to China without having to use a fumigation. Uh, We are looking at trying to open Australia and New Zealand for the U.S. blueberry industry. We're looking at uh, opening South Africa for the U.S. blueberry industry and also expanding our Chilean access for the U.S. blueberry industry. Right now, the West Coast can ship and we're working on trying to make it so the entire country can ship. And finally, uh, Korea, we currently have it so Oregon can ship and we're trying to allow other states to be able to ship as well under similar circumstances.
0: Well, I'm excited to dig deeper into some of those initiatives with Matt, as well as get Mario's take on how they might impact US growers and marketers. But before we do, let's take a quick break for our crop report. We're approaching the end of the domestic season for many growers, but there's still news to share. So here, once again, is your Blueberry Crop Report.
2: It's time for your Blueberry Crop Report, an update on crop conditions and markets from important blueberry growing areas. Today, you'll hear from Doug Kramer in Oregon, Brian Sakuma in Washington, and Luis Vegas in Peru. This was recorded on September 1st, 2021. This is Doug Kramer reporting for Oregon.
0: Oregon is definitely slowing down, or we should be finishing
2: up on Elliot's or most Elliot's this week. We'll still have last call and some rabbit eyes to go. There'll be fairly consistent volume through the month of September, but the volume is certainly not big volumes. But by the end of September, we'll be done harvesting.
4: Okay, this is Brian Sakuma calling from Washington. Uh, We're getting down to the end of the season. Uh, Eastern Washington, it's starting to cool down. They're into minimal volumes, probably for the next two or three weeks uh, with some of the late varieties. Uh, Western Washington, we're down to the last calls, Elliot's, and we'll be trickling in fruit for the next two or three weeks. And it's cool as well. And our season is a wrap.
1: Peru has shipped a total of 50.3 million pounds of fresh blueberries worldwide. Up until the end of week 33 of this season, From this overall volume, 52% uh, has been shipped to the US, 22% to Europe, 22% to China, and 3% to other destinations. Uh, Well, during week 33, a total of 10.8 million pounds of fresh blueberries were shipped from Peru, which accounted for 28% of the overall volume shipped during. So during this week, we almost shipped one third of all the volume shipped throughout the season so that's the report for peru up until the end of week 33 well thanks so
0: much to our busy growers who take the time to participate in these weekly crop reports as a reminder you can go to the new ushbc website where you'll find our data and insight center to see more data of what's happening in the blueberry industry we've made the snapshot view of the usda data on production and price an online resource for everyone to access easily and quickly so make sure again you go to ushbc.org forward slash data to check that out. Okay, Alicia, I'll hand things back over to you to lead our conversation with Matt and Mario.
3: So between 2019 and 2020, we had three new markets open And and just to kind of tie the pieces together, from there, we were able to utilize the USDA Foreign Ag Service Trade Program, the Market Access Program, as well as the Agricultural Trade Promotion Program, or ATP, to initiate market development activities. So we were able to launch some promotions and really work on introducing the U.S. blueberries to consumers in those markets. So it was a really good success story between you know, we're opening the market NABC's effort on that part into USHBC and developing these work plans and then ultimately launching some promotional programs, which is really the fun part. So it was, yeah, it was very busy. And in the midst of a global pandemic, we were just able to accomplish a lot. One thing I wanted to dig a little bit deeper on is that when we're working on these work plans and um, regulations really for growers to follow, and oftentimes there's the West Coast Protocol for states in California, Oregon, and Washington, and then there's the Eastern U.S. Work Plan. And so, Matt, can you explain a little bit why that happens and, you know, why these different growing regions have different work plans and protocols? Like, what are export? What are these countries really trying to do by having these different protocols in place?
1: Sure, Alicia. And believe me, it's as frustrating for me as it is probably for the industry on this. You know, I certainly would like to negotiate any agreement that is blanket covers the entire U.S. blueberry industry in all states with the same regulations. The challenge with this, and I'll get a little tactical here, the challenge is uh, blueberry maggot. Uh, the fact that blueberry maggot exists east of the Rocky Mountains means that Countries are more concerned about that and have more requirements that they need to put or are seeking to put on uh, growers east of the Rockies than they do west of the Rockies. And so that's why, for example, you see with China that for states in the west coast, they can ship under what we call systems approach, where you just have to follow certain steps. And the east coast can actually uh, ship, but they have to use fumigation, methyl bromide fumigation in order to ship. And that affects quality. So in the China agreement that we negotiated last year, you know, we kind of locked that part in, at least the market was open. And then we committed to doing research on blueberry maggot to try to address that issue. So we've been doing trapping in many different states, and that information will be shared with China. And then hopefully we be able to negotiate with China a protocol that also allows them to ship without fumigation. So we see that uh, again and again in different markets. You know, Chile, we have that situation as well. And um, it just, you know, it's challenging. If you look at our Australia and New Zealand negotiations, again, they're asking about blueberry maggot, and how we address blueberry maggot. They also are concerned about spotted wing drosophila. So, you know, we get it down in the weeds, we use entomologists, we use researchers to try to address these questions, but it gets down to science. It works well when it's all just based on science, but sometimes, unfortunately, politics gets involved as well. And that's when the NABC has to get involved uh, to try to break log jams along the way. Sometimes it's nefarious. Sometimes it's a, a zero-sum game. We're not going to let in your blueberries until you let in our ex dragon fruit or or grapes or or whatever the issue is. Sometimes they don't want a different product from the United States to come into their country and compete with them. And so you know there's kind of an order of when you open a market, you know, we're going to work on blueberries first, then we're going to work on this and that. Well, maybe the guy in the third spot is a direct competitor with growers in the, the foreign market. So they don't want to get done with blueberries. So then you got to go down to the agenda and start directly negotiating on that third spot. So it's tough, uh, really interesting. Each country has its own personality in the way they negotiate these things. And uh, uh, it's really interesting to see the difference between how the Chinese negotiate or the Philippines negotiates or South Africa. Uh, yeah, actually, it's kind of a funny story. In our current South African, Draft protocol we're working on. They're negotiating partially for the Pacific Northwest and then the East Coast. And we said, "What about California?" And for them, California is in the Pacific Northwest. And we're like, "All right, well, as long as California's in there, that you know, we don't really call it the Pacific Northwest, but as California's, if that's how you want to call it, we'll allow that to work."
0: I'm sure the Pacific Northwest appreciate that. <laughs>
1: yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. So, Mario, I mean, from the grower and exporters perspective like what what happens when a new market opens on your end and we're sending out all these updates and we're sending you multiple page long work plans and protocols to follow what do you do with it next
4: well, what we do is we go to our, our growers, our individual growers, especially those who are interested in, in exporting their fruit. And we work the plan with them on what the protocols are, what the MRLs are asking for, uh, so they can understand whether or not they can manage their, their crop based on those protocols and MRLs. And also, sometimes we have to look at the, the tariffs as well. But you know, first, we have to see what we have to do to get that product to meet the standards that are required just to get into the country and then we we work that through that after the growers let us know that yes they can work with those protocols and they can make it work with the MRLs then our next step is uh, we go out and, and contact customers, contact from leads that uh, that we get also from USHBC and and other sources. And we start uh, the activity of, of discussing with potential customers. And it's great that whenever we see an open market, like you mentioned, Vietnam, Philippines, et cetera, there is a lot of interest. There's pent up demand, so to speak. Uh, There's people interested in wanting, you know, USA blueberries. And that's really exciting because then that gets the the ball rolling. But nothing gets started until we have that market access, until we have the MRLs ironed out and we understand what we're dealing with to see if we can get our product to market.
1: Uh, Alicia, if I could add in, you know, when we are negotiating the opening of these markets, it's really important that we have feedback from People like Mario and from growers, because nobody wants to negotiate an agreement that can't be met. You know, so if they have some sort of requirement in there that's a poison pill, we could sign the agreement with a foreign country. But if all the growers say, you know, we can't do this, it's either not economical or just is not practical. So, you know, through the USHBC, uh, we've developed technical experts who, you know, take a look at our draft protocols and make sure and try to improve them. Once we have that locked in. And we've kind of done that for Vietnam and the Philippines. We try to draw on those protocols for other markets. And so if we get South Africa open, we want it to be as close to the Philippines and Vietnam. So growers just have to do one set of things or maybe a little tweak here or there. But so it's not five different protocols for five different groups, or at least they're pretty similar.
0: Yeah, maybe Matt, you could just help the audience appreciate a little bit about what that forum looks like in any of these negotiations, kind of paint a picture of like. Who's in the room, who's not? How does the information flow to who about what to get these conversations into a shape that allows for those types of decisions to be made?
1: Uh, I'm normally sitting in a hotel room with my, uh, with my cell phone waiting for the negotiators to call me. <laughs> the negotiations are government-to-government only. They start at a tactical level. The U.S. government has annual meetings with foreign governments on plant health issues. If we come with our lists. They come with their list, and we try to advance them to try to open the markets. If it's um, you know pretty straightforward, like it was in the Philippines, normally you can just do that tactically back and forth and reach an agreement. But most countries, there ends up being a political aspect to it, and then it comes down to horse trading or cajoling or uh, other political means on occasions. And this is where we are with Japan blueberry tariff situation, it becomes political. You have to get to a higher level, political level, to say, look, this needs to be put on a special agenda to try to get this advanced. And those are normally put forward, and then the foreign government normally has something, and then they will all agree that, okay, we'll address these issues for you, you address those issues for us. You know, occasionally, some are so controversial that it's almost never resolved. I mean, I've worked on a couple of market access issues for 20 years before we finally got them fixed. So, fortunately, there aren't any blueberry issues that are up to that level yet. But that's essentially how it works. You start with the tactical folks. You know, you have to make a conscious decision to raise it to political folks. And then if you don't think you're getting the traction on political folks, then you might have to bring in Congress or other things to
3: put it together. Well, so... The last thing I want to talk about, about technical aspect of exporting is MRLs. And, you know, Casey and I were up in the Pacific Northwest earlier this summer. And at almost every location, we talked about MRL policy and what's happening, especially with growers that export. And so, you know, there's a lot that we've been working on and it's increasingly been a new barrier to trade. Whereas countries previously defaulted to codex, which, you know, used to be a more international standard for MRL policy, more and more countries are developing their own list, which maybe have different levels than what the U.S. tolerates. So, you know, Mario, I wanted to start with you. I mean, how much does this impact growers? I mean, they have to consider what the policy is for where they're gonna end up selling their fruit all the way from the beginning when they're developing their spray programs.
4: Oh yes, for sure. And, and we start those discussions probably within the next a couple months uh, where we start talking to our growers who are focused on, on the export markets, which markets we're planning to sell to next year and some kind of volume estimates that we can give them so that they can start managing their farm. They Sometimes they may start applying something in December, January uh, that they need to be aware of, but it's really about how they're gonna manage their farms. And we have several growers who literally take separate blocks, separate fields, and they manage them completely differently uh, associated with those particular markets. So if we have certain markets that we're asking so many pounds for, they'll designate a certain field or block, and they're going to manage it uh, based on those MRLs. So for growers who want to participate in multiple export markets, uh, they're really doing a juggling act, trying to manage different fields or different farms based on the markets that that we're trying to manage and sometimes some growers will throw up their hands for a particular market uh, that is really difficult there's some markets where it's almost like having to send organic fruit to meet their MRLs. but some growers manage it and other growers say I- i'd rather pass on this one so it, it is a juggling act for growers
0: we're going to take a quick break here for our marketing boost. We'll be right back to this conversation in a moment. But for now, here's USHBC NABC Vice President of Marketing and Communications, Jennifer Sparks.
5: Thanks, Casey. Today, we're talking about reaching the consumer during timely moments when they might be most in need of new recipes, ideas, and inspiration, where blueberries fit right in. That's right. Halloween, Thanksgiving, Hanukkah, Christmas, and New Year's. This Fall and Winter presents oodles of opportunities to capture consumer interest in food hacks and recipes to enhance their gatherings with family and friends. Enter USHBC's Fall and Winter Holiday Toolkit. We know your content calendars and marketing plans are set months in advance, and we want to be sure you have the tools and resources you need to help your customers make blueberries a staple in all of their holiday plans. From social graphics to banner ads, fun videos, a holiday tip sheet, and recipe cards, photos, and videos that this toolkit has everything you and your marketing team need to create newsletter, social media, and website content, and to enhance your own promotions and activations. Consumers will love holiday-specific recipes like our blueberry mini mummy muffins for Halloween, blueberry chocolate-covered pretzels for their next cookie swap, an easy blueberry eggnog, or the blueberry sparkler cocktail for their holiday toasts. Our recipes are easy enough to add into their typical holiday rotation and tasty enough to make them a must-have staple. Let's get people grabbing a boost of blue at every turn throughout the holidays. Just go to ushbc.org/toolkits and click on the Fall and Winter Holiday Toolkit to see all of the content and inspiration waiting for you to share with your audiences. This has been your marketing boost. Thank you for your partnership. As together we inspire the world to grab a boost of blue. Back to you, Casey.
0: Thanks, Jenny. Now back to today's episode with Alicia, Mario, and Matt.
5: And Matt,
3: I mean, in terms of, you know, working on policy, this is something, you know, you've worked on for a long time. And I guess we could start with South Korea. We had a three-year grace period, and then they transitioned to a their own national tolerance list, right? I mean, can you explain why this happened and what it means? Uh,
1: sure. You know, MRLs are typically the most boring and nefarious trade issue you have to deal with. People groan when you hear about MRLs, but the minute you have a problem, they become a super high priority. You have a rejection, or you know, from a grower's perspective, if you're told you can't use a certain product because there's missing MRLs and you have to treat for a pest, that's frustrating. So what we're all trying to do is to make sure that foreign pesticide standards, uh, maximum residue levels, Are as harmonized as possible with the US standards. The trend over the last 20 years has been, as you mentioned, Alicia, that every country wants their own list. And it started with Taiwan around 2000 and Japan in 2006. And countries have moved every four or five years. You'll see a a market say, We want our own MRL list. Australia has their list, China has a limited list that we're trying to expand. But the, the real hot country right now that's making the transition to South Korea, and that's an important market for the U.S. blueberry industry. It's incredibly important we get as many blueberry MRLs established there as possible at a harmonized level. The actual policy went into effect in 2019, but they gave us a three-year extension with temporary MRLs to try to make sure trade would not be affected. Uh, I think MRLs are typically not a political tool. They're an unintentional trade barrier. They just mismatched numbers or somebody has missed uh, establishing an MRL. So our our job at Brian Christie working with Blueberry industry is to try to find what those needs are and get those MRLs established. And in Korea, what we had to do is put together data packages and submit them to the Korean government for review. And I'm very pleased to say that we have made a lot of progress and almost all priority MRLs uh, that are needed have been established in Korea. And the biggest one of all for us, uh, was a product called Methamil. This is a product used to treat spotted-wing drosophila. And we said, no problem, we'll go ahead and make that get that MRL submitted. And it turns out the MRL in the U.S. was not based on blueberry data. It was based on another data. And Korea said, you have to have blueberry data. So we used a spot in a regional group for IR4 to do the needed research two or three years ago. And then we put that in an application and we submitted it to the Korean government. And the Korean government just in the last month has established that MRL at an acceptable level. And now growers are going to be able to use Methamil if they need to, to treat spotted wing Drosophila, ship to Korea and not have an issue. And so what that is, is a real success story of identifying a problem two or three years ago, identifying the gap of what was needed, fixing that gap, getting the data in and getting the standard in place so when Mario is is exporting, he has confidence when he's selling to Korean customers or when they ask what's been applied to this product, that MRL is in good shape and we're not going to have a problem. So that's how it's supposed to work. And uh, I'm really pleased by that. progress.
4: Yeah, from, from that perspective, I, I really appreciate that, Matt, because our, our growers are always looking for any updates and then seeing how that applies to how they're managing their their crop and what they can use and and oftentimes they're they're managing some fields for multiple markets and the more they're harmonized or at least know understand what they have to do uh, they can get their fields ready and and something that was mentioned before about you know trying to manage pests in this MRL environment oftentimes were many years growers Give us a call and they say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, Mario, but uh, we're going to have to bow out of this market because we just had a uh, certain pest that was in our traps and we're going to have to spray for it. And uh, the only way to do it is to apply something that's going to uh, save their crop from that pest, but that's going to take us out of that market. So that happens from year to year. And that's just um, part of the business.
3: Yeah. I mean, I want to commend Matt, your team at BCI. You have a really great team team working on these issues. They are extremely responsive and very competent and knowledgeable of the policy. in fact, they'll be at our fall meetings with us too. I'm really happy that, you know, Alini, who specifically works on MRL issues, will be there to meet with growers that are attending. And you know, I also wanted to mention that this effort in South Korea was actually funded by the Technical Assistance for Specialty Crops Grant Program. Which is a USDA FAS program. And we've been increasingly using, we call it Task, the Task Grant Program to address these technical barriers. It was, it was also the task program that conducted the research that was needed in negotiations with Australia and New Zealand. So that's been completed and put to use. You know, it's in the hands of USDA APHIS. Another big study we're working on is a National Residue Decline Curve study to establish residue decline curves as a resource for growers to understand how chemicals that they're using on their crop, how they degrade over time so that they can have more assurance whether or not they'll have an issue in a market. and it's a pretty big study where it's going to take several years. We want to have as much of an average as possible in multiple growing regions because obviously climate affects residue decline and that's funded by task. And we um, will have over 90% of chemicals used on exports included in the study. So, you know, I'm, I'm really excited to provide that tool to growers within the next several years as a, as a complete report.
1: Alicia, I think that's fantastic because just because a foreign MRL is lower than the U.S. MRL does not necessarily mean there's a problem. Uh, Your residue still could be way lower than a foreign MRL. So that information will be incredibly valuable. If the U.S. MRL is at five, the Korean MRL is at three, but all of our residues are at point one, you're providing tools to say, hey, we're going to be okay with that, which is great. also wanted to point out that you have an MRL chart that you share with the industry. And so growers need to know what the MRLs are. They can turn to that or to our company's MRL database, which is funded by the U.S. government. And finally, I'd like to say, you know, when I hear Mario speak, it's music to my ears. You know, we're we're the ones trying to open the market and try to make things go smooth and to hear how it then is successfully pivoted and used to try to, you know, expand sales and help growers get their exports. Um, That's just that's a great success. And I I think you guys do a really nice job organizing this to, to make the whole thing work.
0: Well, I really enjoy, obviously, both Matt and Mario's perspective on on things, especially in the blueberry business, but just hearing them kind of talk a little bit more about, you know, kind of the depth and breadth of our program in what our two organizations do. I know we're here talking about kind of both sides of those. Alicia, this was another informative and helpful episode. These global markets aren't always easy to navigate, but they are so important for the future of blueberries. What do you hope your listeners take away from this episode?
3: Well, you know, I really hope that, and I and I I think it came through as to all of the different aspects and you know work that's being done by USHBC with Bryant Christie and with the Export Committee at USHBC. As well as NABC on their role to break down these barriers that really, you know, affect growers and their desire to export, and also appreciate how much progress we've made in a short period of time and what's on the horizon next. You know, we talk about these countries that seem small, you know, South Africa or New Zealand, but in the big picture combined with these more established markets like Japan or South Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore, which are more of those you know, transit markets to access other countries in Southeast Asia or Asia, North Asia, that it just provides one more market for them to export to. And the growers and companies that are able to figure it out and really put the work into compliance with these protocols, it it pays off. And like you said earlier, you know, a lot of these markets are untapped in terms of blueberries and they're really at an early stage of market development. So, you know, consumption's a a fraction of what it is in the U S and they're willing to pay higher prices for USA blueberries. They really value U S agriculture. And I think part of it is because we put so much care and effort into growing food safely. So this is really, really what it's about. And I hope that the listeners really, you know, took away something that is inspiring.
0: Well, I was inspired. I think the other thing that our listeners should know that a driving priority going into our new strategic plan is that we're set for a doubling of exports to 2025. So, I mean, it's not a small strategic goal here we're we're going to double exports by 2025 and of course we're going to need help and i think part of what i i hear from mario and certainly when we get into the doing the work that it takes a commitment to these countries and so part of what i know we're going to be looking for in the years ahead is is the commitment of the cooperating effort that it takes to keep these countries supplied you know much like we do here in the united states for 365 days a year in order to meet the demand that really has done the work of growing our market here in the United States. So again, another great connection to what it's gonna take for the business of blueberries going forward from here. These global markets aren't always easy to navigate, but they're super important for the future of blueberries. So. Thank you, Alicia. Great episode. That's it for episode 63. If you or your company are interested in learning more about export markets, feel free to reach out to Alicia. She's a tremendous resource to the industry about accessing these global markets. You can find all of her contact information on our website at ushbc.org. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more innovation, collaboration, family, and hard work right here on The Business of Blueberries.